BBCC episode 11, my realization of the day. If you were a horror movie archetype, who would you be? I'd be that ethnically ambiguous friend who does everything right, only to be killed at the end trying to help the final girl. It's bullshit, I tell you, but you know what? I don't make the rules. Just ask the cabin in the woods, God. Let's get to the show. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. It is your boy, Devon Taylor here, and we are back. It is episode 11. I am feeling pretty good because this is... I'm super excited for this episode, guys. We are capping off our heat-soaked horror month with The Final Girls. This movie came out a few years ago and is one of my all-time favorites. It's already kind of developing into a cult classic, and... I got to talk with the director himself, Mr. Todd Strauss-Schulson, and boy, did he give me all sorts of goodies about this film. So, before we get to the interview, just a few things. One, make sure you guys watch this movie. I mean, you should be watching all movies before you listen to a Blade Blunt Cinema Club because there will always be spoilers and... I don't always, you know, recap the movies like scene for scene like a lot of other podcasts do. I go in assuming that you've seen the film. So I highly recommend, especially because there is spoiler things and emotions and all sorts of stuff. So like I said, make sure you watch The Final Girls before you listen to this episode. But in general, for Blade Blunt Cinema Club, make sure you watch the movie first. I always put it out on Twitter a couple days beforehand uh, promoting it. So make sure you just... uh, follow on Twitter, or I always tell you at the end of the episode what next week's episode will be. So yeah, just make sure you guys are watching the movie before you listen to the episode. Like I said, I am very excited for this interview because it was exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to do for my podcast. Like this is what it's about for me is, you know, bringing these hidden gem movies, movies that people don't know a lot about, or just didn't get enough hype for one reason or another. And this is a great example of one of those films. And uh, Todd gets it very in detail about it. He definitely, um, you know, lets me know uh, everything that was going on with the, the production and the release of this film and stuff like that. So it's like, I, I want to talk to directors um, you know, who not only, you know, just don't get the love for the film they like, but but I think it's good for them to hear it, you know? Like, you'll hear instantly, Todd said he loves this movie himself. It's one of his favorite films. And that was amazing to talk to because, it's like, you know, people put so much work into it and, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, when they are happy with something and a lot of people didn't get to see it, or at least they just don't hear about it, you know, hear the love that people have for the film, you know, that's a big thing. And uh, so, yeah, I, I really want to shine light on, you know, some of these smaller films and get to tell, talk to the director and literally just tell them the things that I loved about their film, you know, but at the same time, kind of get some insight as to, you know, how the film came out the way that it did in general. So I am super excited for this interview, but um, last thing before we get into it is, like I said, if you have a movie that you love, especially if it's a not super popular one, especially when it comes to independent films, if there's a movie you love, tell people about it. 
recommend it to people. Tweet about it. Tweet at the directors. I know some people are, like, weird about, like, tagging directors or writers when they're, like, tweeting and stuff because they, like, feel like it's weird or, like, because they're a celebrity or whatever. No, fuck that. They want to hear these kind of things, or at least a lot of them. They want to hear the good things. Obviously, don't tag directors when you're just, like, talking shit on their film. I never do that. But when it's a film that I love, I make sure that I'm, like, trying to tag them directly so that way they can see it. Um, So that goes for just any film that you really love and you are worried that's not getting the audience that it deserves. Just fucking talk about it. Tell people how much you love it. That being said, let's go ahead and... Alright, welcome to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, guys. We have a very special guest that I told you guys in the intro about. Um, He is the director of the movie that we're talking about today. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, It's one of these movies that I just love to tell people about because I feel like not enough people know about it, and it just doesn't get the love it deserves. I just, I love it so much, so I'm really glad that I could get Todd Strauss-Schulson on the show to talk about it. What's up, Todd? How are you doing? Pretty, pretty good. I feel the same exact way about the movie that you do. Oh, thank goodness. My favorite movie of all time, and, I, and it doesn't get the love that it deserves. I mean, all your movies, like when you make your own movies, they should always be on your all-time favorites list. I mean, I feel like if you, you know, did your job correctly. So I'm really glad that you feel uh, that comfortable with the movie. I do. I always, always starting a new movie, it's like, it's an unattainable goal, but you always kind of hope you're like, I'm trying to make someone's favorite movie like i'm trying to make a movie that someone's gonna go home and be like that's my favorite movie it was funny it was beautiful it was you mm-hmm. know wild the visuals it just gave me an experience it's my favorite i love how i felt when that movie ended that's yeah. like a goal yeah. i don't think that i achieve it but it's a great intention to say you know no i think that's a great intention because i like that it's you're focusing on what the audience is going to get out of it. You're, you're very, like you said, like you want that reaction versus you're not as concerned with like, Oh no, I'm trying to make my magnum opus or anything like that. I love that your, your intentions were very pure with the film. And I do feel like that comes through the film a lot. Um, I feel like this movie, cause it's been five years now and it, and it definitely has a, a lot of love out there. Uh, I saw this, I wrote, I wrote an article and I mentioned the the movie. It was like on a list article I wrote a little while back, and uh, people really were like, "Oh my God, yes, yes, yes!" The Final Girls. So I was uh, yeah, super if, happy. Yeah, if you've seen it, you love it, and the horror community particularly embraced it in a huge way when it first came out. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what this whole podcast is all about. Like, you know, the the. I'm not sitting here trying to break down like films and like, and what's the point of talking about stuff you don't love? Like, I just want to, I want to talk about a movie that I love that I want to bring more people to bring more eyes to it. I really do feel like in another like five years or so, this is going to be like one of those cult classics. Like, I feel like this yeah. is, it's primed for like midnight screenings and things like that. So when I really it do. first came out, this is one of the beautiful things that happened in that year is that, you know, we put a lot, we'll talk about it. I'm sure. But like, Everyone involved, the actors and the writers and me and the whole, we put our fucking hearts into the movie. I think you you even said, like, you can kind of feel some of that energy in the movie. And then it came out like a day and date VOD thing. It didn't get a 
decent theatrical situation. And it was really sad because it was so much one of those like midnight theater, you know, it screened at all these amazing festivals, South by and Stanley. And in a room full of people that like love these kinds of movies, it was just like, it was like the movie was on steroids. People were screaming and laughing and crying. It was a beautiful communal thing and it didn't get to have that experience. But in that year afterwards, it did kind of get a lot of midnight screening pickups. And I traveled all over the country and even into Europe a little bit for these like double feature midnights, Q and A's. And you could really, I got to meet so many of the people that like saw it and like, you know, held it close to their hearts. Because it is kind of an emotional movie also, besides being mm. funny and, and crazy. And so, yeah, it, it getting that little like cult midnight vibe in the year afterwards was almost like healing for all the people that made it because we were disappointed in the way that mm-hmm. it was released. But then it was like everyone like came out and was like, no, we're not letting it go down like that. We're putting it up on the screen. We're all showing up. Drag queens in San Francisco were doing like, you know, musical numbers based on the Betty Davis side and doing a big screening. I was like, oh my God, you are healing us. We're going to go out and make more movies now. Thank you. That's what it's all about, you know, like whenever that appreciation happens, it doesn't really matter, you know, sometimes. I think that's especially in the horror community. Like the horror community is all about like, you know, finding these smaller movies a little bit later and being like, oh, hey, this crazy movie or this like super funny entertaining movie did you hear about the final girls you know and it's i feel like the the horror community just kind of does that with a lot of movies that we the horror community is just really good at like looking back and appreciating something and being like oh hey this was something we didn't see before but now we definitely see it so that's like yeah. really great that even if it happened a year later like you still got that you know validation and really and really smart like i think that some of us i mean i mean i grew up loving i mean being part of that community loving those kinds of movies you know wanting to be a makeup effects person certainly the writers josh and mark josh is the child of you know people famous people in the horror community and mark is a cinephile of this stuff but we were all a little bit nervous because the movie is pg-13 and it's not the goriest you know it's not the goriest splatter horror movie that maybe the world of horror fans are going to you know, not take to it. They're going to think that we kind of, you know, wimped out because we didn't go far enough. But in fact, it was so beautiful because the thing that that community so loves about the movie, besides it being a love letter to those films we all grew up with, Mm -hmm. is the mother-daughter story. Is like actually that emotionally resonant piece of it. It's surprising. It's beloved. It's welcomed. You're like, oh, this is great. You just love it as a movie. It doesn't need to be torture mm-hmm. porn of course it doesn't and people don't understand that about that community. You know, it's not just about blood and guts yeah like i mean this is definitely like you know more like i do definitely think about like the more emotional sides and the comedic aspects of it you know on top of all the horror elements but before we before we like nit- get down into the nitty-gritty i want to take a few steps back rewind just get a little little bit of your background and a little bit more of uh your your mind and taste before we really dive into the movie so um i saw that you you started in music videos a little bit and then i saw that um a very harold and kumar christmas 3d was your feature debut how did you get from that to making the final girls well i grew up in new york i grew up in queens 
and I loved movies and I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was like a little, little kid. Like I love movies from a baby, being a baby. My mother has like some story when I was like three years old, I'd freak out until she like took me in a stroller down to the movie theater on Queens Boulevard because I knew that mm. there'd be new posters and words on the marquee. So it was always a big part of me. And throughout high school, I, you know, I made movies after school and all that stuff. Oh, we're smoking weed during this. I'm loving it. Oh yeah, I mean bloody bloods. This is a this is a weed subject podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So movie kid for for sure, and movies every day after high school, film school in Boston, moved to California afterwards, and then just struggled for maybe eight or nine years, but was just constantly making stuff. Like loved as a kid, Robert Rodriguez movies, you mm-hmm. know, and, and and particularly that book, and wanted to just be making stuff like a one man army of making movies. Yeah. And with my comedy friends from college, I was making comedy videos, but the movies that I loved that I was sort of studying, you know, were big cinematic filmmaker driven movies. Like being a little kid that wanted to be a director, the movies where you could feel a director were the most inspiring ones. Mm-hmm. Like, like, sure, I love Ghostbusters, like who doesn't? But boy, when I saw like Hudsucker Proxy or like a Ken Loach movie, or, you know, or like Found Evil Dead 2 when I was 13 years old or saw like early Wachowski stuff, you know, or like, I was just like, oh my God, who the fuck is that guy? Like, what yeah. is that shot? Like, what is this music? Like, what is that sequence? Oh my God, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so that was just really inspiring to feel the heavy hand of a director because I was trying to learn how to do it. And so I moved to California. I made a bunch of shorts and music videos and bad commercials and a bunch of random jobs and just generating content just like just generating and learning and learn learn. like there was like one year where i like wrote directed and cut like i think like 425 or something little things the commercials or short films or you know wow so it was just like it was like a crazy amount of energy and um and eventually, you know, one of these short films that I made after, you know, years of trying to get the attention mm-hmm. of anybody in the movie business, you know, I'm failing. Like I would, every time I'd make something, I'd make like a reel or I'd put it online and I'd send it out to people and hope that someone would be like, oh, you're so talented. We're going to sign you and be mm-hmm. your agent, and give you a movie. And it never happened. And it was really discouraging. And then I, there was one moment where I got so frustrated from like wasting my energy making like butterfinger branded content and i was mm. like i'm just gonna take a couple of hundred dollars that i've made doing this garbage and i'm gonna go with two of my friends and just like make my own thing like, we're gonna write it together i'll shoot it i'll cut it we put it online that was a very successful moment and short film for me and finally agents did call they were like what's this viral thing we're all that's getting passed around and i was like oh this is great finally i just focused on you know mm-hmm. something i wanted to make and it's getting you know some attention and so after i got signed to some and then for a year i was trying to like get a big movie you know go out for pitches and all this writing things and mm-hmm. trying to book something and meeting junior creative executives it was very exciting actually even though it was kind of like you know mm-hmm. and um and then and through that and i kept on making shorts i kept on making and you can see them on my website or some of them at least mm-hmm. on the video but like i Every couple of months, I would try to keep on developing this voice, a style, you know, interesting shots, a tone yeah. of comedy, things that were personal and strange, challenge, little personal filmmaking challenges. And like kind of use it to craft that your voice, like the way that yeah, you're kind of yeah. talking about. Yeah, really, 
yeah, trying to like, almost like, it was almost athletic, like trying to set a challenge. Like, can mm -hmm. I make a short film about something disgusting and, um, and offensive? And can I make it romantic and emotional? You know what I mean? Like, can I do okay. that? Um, you were playing cinematic Mad Libs with yourself. I was, yeah, I was trying to see if I could pull, or like, I've never really... I start. I got into a big Cronenberg binge. I, every movie, top first, first to last, and I read a biography, and was like, "Oh, interesting." He creates these sort of cinematic biospheres. It's really more about intellect, but a mood, like an atmosphere. Let me try to see if I can create atmosphere. You know, and so I made a short that was just about atmosphere. So those kinds of things. Anyways, after a, after a bit of doing that, I finally, I just, I got that Harold Kumar movie. I just went in there with a big song and dance a pitch and and all these films i've been making little shorts and they gave they gave me a job when i was 29 mm -hmm. and um and my father had just passed away like two months before i got that job oh, he man. was like my biggest booster you know everyday phone calls creative person in my family and very much invested in my success he knew that it was he knew how hard i was working but he died just before i you know, got that thing. And I, mm -hmm. I went into Harold and Kumar, you know, now I can say it in retrospect, but almost like shell-shocked from such a massive loss, but I didn't even feel it at the time. I just like went through that movie with adrenaline and that is what Final Girls is kind of about. Okay, that that does make a lot of sense. I can totally feel that. And that is such an interesting circumstance. Like you said, you're like, you lost your biggest supporter right before that break, you know? And so, but I think that almost kind of, you know, worked, might've worked in your favor because like you said, it was just like you were pumped with the adrenaline. So it was like, you know, you had that motivation that you were like, okay, he didn't get to see me get to this point, but now that I am to this point, you know, making the most of it and then taking that, you know, and like, obviously you got to do something of a little bit of a bigger studio setting first, and that kind of got you to, you know, see how the system worked. And then once the second film, I could definitely see the more, the, the personal touches on it, like you yeah, were talking about. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, I took a shot, and that was an expensive movie. We shot it in 3D. Like, yeah. It's pretty insane to give a 29-year-old guy who's never made anything longer than eight minutes, you know. That's what I was going to say. dollar fucking movie. But, you know, it was crazy. And I, and it was you know, it was just crazy. It was amazing. I look back on that movie fondly and even and see it and it's fucking hilarious and, you know, all this stuff. Oh, it's batshit, but in the best way. It's but it certainly wasn't like, you know, Fruitvale Station. Like, it wasn't like a mm. debut feature, but, you know, it was a different kind of way in and I so badly wanted to make almost like my first movie second. Uh, yeah, and that's so, you'll. it's almost like they're out of order. Like, Final Girls almost should have come first. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, for, you know, those of you out there that, like, don't know as much about, like, how the business works and stuff and, like, the different ways that you can go into it. And it's even changed now from, you know, when you were making Harold and Kumar and then, like, to where things are now with, like, you know, the way that directors are getting, uh, you know, discovered through their shorts more often and things like that. And especially, like, with the horror genre... I think it's like you do see a lot of people, like you said, it's like you feel like it would have been swapped because like a lot of people, they get into the, they can do something horror because as a studio, you're more likely to get money from it. It's going to be cheaper to make. 
So it's like usually that, and then you go to make your bigger movie. So yeah, it is kind of interesting that you just like your very first movie were handed the reins of, you know, a movie that was already an established franchise. They gave you money. They told you you could do it in 3D. And then, you know, you got to do that. But I think that also worked out for your second feature being just like more personal because you already got to work out the mechanics of of everything, you know, the nerves of making your first film. And then so that way Final Girl is like just really comes off very natural. Like nothing I can say comfortably, like nothing about Final Girls feels forced ever. Like it it feels just like a very natural film. And I really I do really appreciate that about it. I mean, I love that. I mean, that that's true. I mean, part of the reason why Final Girls got made, it was I mean, to say awfully hard is not even giving it enough credit. It was basically impossible to get money to make that movie. People are people are allergic to horror comedies because they so infrequently work. For some reason, even though they're, mm-hmm. you know, no one can point to a successful one of those besides Shaun of the Dead. And um, it's just hard to get money for a meta, self-aware, like, they were like, what is this? Is it scary? Is it funny? Is it melodramatic? I was like, exactly. That's what it is. It, it they're is. like, well, that's not good for us. I was like, but that's what's good about it. I had already previously made a movie and a kind of a bigger movie helped people feel at ease that at least I wouldn't like burn their money or could pull off something that you know looked like a movie Mm -hmm. you know so that that ended up actually being kind of helpful yeah because they were like you said like they were able to see like okay we've seen what he can do with a lot of money so it's like imagine like you know if he's we can give him a little less money and he's gonna be able to like stretch that and make it work so i think i think even personally like there was an energy coming out of harold and kumar of like you know like when it was over i had a fucking full meltdown obviously because of my personal life and but also had like a lot of I wanted to like prove that I wasn't just, you know, dick jokes and, you know, getting a shoddy in the face in 3D guy. Like I was getting sent a lot of like bro frat, you know, kind of things. And I was like, I don't don't know like that. I don't do that. I just like made it seem like that's who I am. It's not fully who I am. No, it's like like wanting to prove myself with Final Girls, Mm -hmm. which wouldn't have happened if that was first out in the same kind of yeah yeah that is it's such a filmmaking is it's such a strange world to like you know to where you get it from you know how how to make it happen so like i do had we like kind of got into it a little bit it was like you know questions about the release and like how everything so it's like you know against all odds you got you obviously got the money you assembled an all-star cast like i mean just like such a fantastic ensemble cast and and you pull off the movie and then so like with the release i i because i do just always think about this in my head like with just the 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 quotability of the film and just the quality of it overall the the way it approaches the the horror genre with love and comedy as well i was just like if this got a larger release like I just can't think of a way that this wouldn't have been more popular, you know, like just to hit the, the, like to hit the zeitgeist, like the way it did, especially with like social media. And 2015 was like a huge year for indie horror in general, like people starting to be able to watch more indie films. So it's like, I guess people were kind of staying out of the theaters and figured out, Oh, we can just watch movies at home now. But like, if this was like, if it would have got a mainstream release, like, this would have been just like one of those like very quotable, like easygoing films. It has the, you know, the recognition of, 
you know, the all the things that's parodying of like the Friday Thirteenth franchise specifically. And I'm just like, man, like, how did it just not happen that way? Yeah, I mean, it was it was painful. How did it not happen that way? I mean, what happened was, is that it was awfully hard to get. We all were desperate to make it, in particular me. And no, there weren't a lot of places to get money. And the one place that was creatively aligned with us, that was going to give us money, literally the only show in town was um, a mini division at Sony that was a VOD part of Sony. But the people there were great and they understood the script and I was going to get a lot of freedom and they were going to go and they were going to give us enough money to make the movie that we wanted to make, you know, not even mm-hmm. a lot, five million dollars. And so I was like, well, I mean, look, the, op- the option is we either don't make a movie or we make it with these guys. The part of the deal was, is that we make it with those guys and they would then go try to sell the movie. But if no one wanted to buy the movie for a bunch of money, mm-hmm. they could release it themselves through a VOD kind of a situation. And it okay. wasn't like streaming right now where like mm-hmm. a movie like Palm Springs comes out on Hulu and it's like a thing, you know? It was like it was kind of get dumped onto VOD and people would find the thing. So I was like, I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll gamble that. I'm going to, I can bet on this movie. This movie's going to be great. And someone's going to want to buy it for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Well, those guys lived up to the deal. I mean, they gave us freedom. We were just like a bunch of like 30 something year olds at a summer camp going berserk, making this fucking movie. And there was not that much interference, even in the edit. And, you know, um, so it was quite a good collaboration, very supportive, mm-hmm. this group. And then we even like premiered it like opening night at South by in the big theater. At midnight, like on the opening okay. night, like, it was like great, and it was a blowout screening. It was unreal. The whole cast was there, and me and the writers. It was fucking great, and um, yeah, people went fucking berserk. And I was like, "Well, that's it. We got a hit. This is gonna be great. A twenty four is gonna buy it. It's gonna be a whole thing." That's what I thought for a night, and the next day the reality of the situation became clear that like a lot of buyers weren't in the room or people were watching it on links at home the next day. Mm-hmm. And so the energy of the room didn't translate. And there were a couple of people that were offering money. In fact, they 24 was like, well, we'll, we'll do it, but they weren't offering enough to the financiers that they were like, even though their marketing is going to be better and they'll make it a dramatic cultural moment, uh, we got to get our money back. So we're just going to release it ourselves. That And so the worst mm. case scenario, the thing, the gamble did not impact that. They were like, we'll just do it ourselves. And I, and it's not to begrudge anybody anything, you know, mm-hmm. like they gave us the money. The movie wouldn't exist without them. And it's- but because of that, you know, it didn't have... You know, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, I would not say is one of their best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. But it had a pretty massive release. That one had a bigger release, yeah. by a proper movie studio. We just didn't have that situation going into it. Because what's great about the movie is also what was the most challenging part of the movie, is that it's a big genre mashup of everything, and that's who's yeah, and it's like, and, and that's the give and take of, you know, when you're working with certain studios, because like you said, you obviously had the luxury of getting to make the exact film that you wanted with little interference, 
And it's like, obviously, the the bigger studios that you have that are trying to put money into the distributions, the more they're going to be sitting there looking at the edits of the film going, uh, hey, can you can you take that out? Or, hey, can we move this around? You know, so it definitely is like the, the give and take of, of the, the movie industry in general. Yeah. But, bummer, but it's tough because if you had a chance to do it all over again, like, what would you do? Would you rather have not made the movie? Exactly. No. And I think... Like a tough one, you know? It's like you just have to hope that the movie does have some sort of uh, afterlife. And guys like you and everyone else on Twitter and everything, it helps, you know? Yeah, it, it really does. And and like I said, and I think, uh, you know, because I think no matter what, you know, the internet and the way that the movie theater industry goes, it's like, you know, word of mouth is always going to be just the ultimate you know, the ultimate way to get a movie around. And I think just over time, it, it definitely has um, made its way around. And, and yeah, and it, it, it has its fandom and you got to make the movie that you made. So, I mean, there's there's nothing else that you could, that you can do a little bit better in that situation. You know, you did everything in your control and, and that's about that, you know? Yeah, there's like a, what is it, Sam Fuller, this filmmaker has a quote. He's like, if someone's giving you a bag of money to make a movie, just make the movie. You know, like yeah. it's it's so impossible to get these things to align that you kind of just gotta say yes when they do and hope for the best. I love that. I I absolutely love that quote. That's so great. <laughs> so we're before we get into just like the list of things I love about this film because that's what this podcast. Yeah, that's what this podcast is really about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. But um, just to kind of get a little look into your brain a little bit, I did ask if, um, just to uh, provide a couple movies, I was just curious on um, what your favorite movie of 2020 is, and if you have a hidden gem to recommend to the audience. Like, I don't know, just something you've watched recently that you really love, or something that you want to get more eyes on. Yeah, I mean, you know, COVID stuff, because not a lot of new movies have come out, but like, before before quarantine, I... I mean, it's obvious, but Invisible Man was fucking really very good. Mm -hmm. And then I was baffled by how little it actually costs to make. So, yeah, I saw that with my girlfriend in a theater. Last movie I saw in a theater. And uh, I just thought it was muscular and fucking scary and very ambitious. I like the way you describe it as muscular. That's a that's a great way to describe a movie. I like that. Yeah, you know, like you can see the filmmaking sometimes is muscular, meaning it's like, Every cut is a strong choice. The camera is where it should be. The music comes in strong. Like the ideas are not diluted. Yeah. And that's always just exciting to see. So I love that one. And then what hidden gems, things I've been watching. Yeah. Like if it's something that you've watched recently that you were just like, ooh, that was really cool, or something that you've been wanting to tell people about, maybe. I mean, I mean, for like, yeah, I mean, I've been sort of sitting, I mean, I've been at home watching a ton of movies i've been mm-hmm. like programming little weekly film festivals nice you know for myself just trying to like get into a filmmaker and go for it or get mm-hmm. into like french sci-fi and just go for that but like the two things that were the most just like inspiring probably just like truly inspiring it's not the most hidden gems or anything but like you know um you know leo corrupt leo Carux, this french filmmaker most, he's this this fucking lunatic and he's made maybe five or six movies starting in the 80s he's this mysterious chain smoking sunglasses he's over the Jim Jarmusch of Paris and but the filmmaking is so 
it's just beautiful. And he's made movies. He's made um, Mauve Sang is an amazing film. You can rent it. Lovers on a Bridge is incredible. Most recently, he made a movie called Holy Motors, which is fucking psychotic, which is easy to get. It's a couple years old. But, you know, every now and again, you'll put on a movie and in the first, you know, 30 seconds, you'll go, who's this? Who's this person? Like, who's this mm-hmm. filmmaker? Like, just the composition, the music, the typography. You're just like, what the fuck? It's so inspiring to see something and you're like, that's unique. It's not just the same fucking thing. You know, mm-hmm. you're like, who thinks that way? Yes. What is this? poetic thing you know you probably felt that way when you first saw reservoir dogs or a cone mm-hmm. movie but like this is this is like that lovers on a bridge in particular is fucking unbelievable this was the most expensive french movie and he couldn't work for six years afterwards and it's they're just all heart and anger they're amazing so i would say if someone's at home that wants to sort of get into a filmmaker and just like go through a filmography and there's documentaries about them also. I would go, I'd get into that. They're just fucking wild. All right, I'm gonna throw that on my list for sure. There, I, I've been wanting to watch a lot more, a lot more French films, uh, just kind of in general. Uh, the past year has been whenever I've been like really expanding like my foreign films and like kind of diving into stuff. So yeah, so they, they, must, they must feel them. They yeah, they they they're not like slow either. They're mm-hmm. like the imagery. You know, I I watch movies for for cinematic ideas yeah. you know and emotion. that's what i like about it i like a big cinematic concept and a feeling and these movies are just you're just like who fucking thinks to fucking move a camera like that or like how did he do that like what that happens so infrequently you know when you see movies yeah and this time you'd be like, like 40 times in a two-hour movie be like how that music cue, that thing, how they pull that off? It was just made you. It makes you want to make movies, you know. Yeah, that's that's literally my favorite thing. Is like you said, like the the when you can something put it out as an artist, and somebody go like, who thinks of that? And like the the recognition of saying like that only that person could think of the thing they just did. That's that's yeah. some really great filmmaking. Right and they're there. a bit grotesque. So like horror horror community they're not horror movies but you know they're not like you know plushy and they're like they're fucking on the edge um yeah that's my big that's a good one those are good nice i have two i have two gems um so i have an older one and a more recent one uh from the older side a lot of people have been uh discovering this now because they added on shutter and uh they did like a joe bob episode of it as well but Tourist Trap is so fun and weird and strange and unusual. I absolutely loved it. Have you seen Tourist Trap? It's from 79. And so it's just, it's one of these just strange slashers that like predated, you know, most of the slashers at the time. And it's like these kids go to this old tourist trap and it's ran by this guy. And he talks about how he has this crazy brother that, you know, um, like he, he sent him away because he was crazy and like, I don't know, but then you see the people of, uh, the, the teenagers just get picked off by this person and the mask he's wearing is just so weird. It like doesn't fit his face at all. And this killer is telekinetic. It's never explained why he's telekinetic. (laughs) 
and that's just like what he mainly does like he like traps people in a room and just like tortures them by like throwing a bunch of stuff at him before like killing them and like and he has such a weird personality and like because you know like slashers over time like you know they kind of took a lot of personality away from the slashers they just became the the hulking walking monsters you know and I really love the personality that they gave this killer. It has a really whimsical score that like almost doesn't fit the movie, which makes it fit the movie perfectly. Um, it's it's just a very strange movie. So it's it's on Shutter if you if you have a Shutter subscription. Yeah. And then the other one that I watched, I watched on Netflix. And you know Netflix horror movies especially can be kind of hit or miss. And some another podcast, Scarred for Life, they were talking about this movie Eli on Netflix. It came out last year. And it's a uh, it's this movie a kid, he uh he's like apparently allergic to everything in the world, you know. Um and he has like all these high allergies, he like lives in a glass case or whatever. And then his parents find this like experimental treatment. There's this doctor that apparently can cure anything. She cures his very specific thing that he has. So the parents are taking him and they apparently spend a lot of money, all this jazz, you know, to go to this out and about weird place. Uh, the main doctor is played by Lily Taylor and she's amazing. And um, I can't tell you much besides that because this movie is going to go. There's no way you can guess where it's going to go. I don't think. I mean, if you're if you're really looking out for it, you can. But it's just like the first 45 minutes, you're thinking it's pretty standard haunted house, creepy asylum, creepy doctor stuff. And then when it clicks, this movie just gets so fun and uh, I absolutely loved it. It's actually a movie I'm going to cover on the podcast at some point, but uh, a really great kid actor in it. Um, It's one of the kids uh, from Captain Fantastic. Uh, I don't have his name off the top of my head, but uh, it's it's a really good movie. It's it's really, really weird. So if you just want a kind of like a very movie it's like fun like if you want a, a good fun movie to watch right now that's gonna it's a nice ride and it takes you for a ride and you like kind of like those movies you're guessing where it's gonna go it, I, I don't think you're gonna be able to figure it out but it's 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 great it's a it was a really good movie and like i said it's like netflix movies you never know whether to take a chance on it if if that's if you want to watch it or not if it's gonna be worth your time eli is 100 worth your time there's one more I can say. I just looked through my list of uh, things I've been watching. Oh, please. More that's fucking nuts. I hadn't seen it. It's like three years old only. It's called Tale of Tales. You know this movie? I've heard of it. It's I fucking I've nuts. It. I couldn't believe it. A little slow, but it's good to have on just while you're eating dinner or something. Italian. or It's in English, but it was made in Italy by Italian people. Oh, who great. Are iconic. You know, like a Dario Argento movie. Like visually insane. Music, costumes, bonkers. Mm. It's kind of like... It's like super fucked up fairy tales. John C. Riley is in it. Selma Hayek is in it. It's oh, yeah. Okay, now I know the movie you're talking about. I haven't seen it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, there's like these sick monsters. It's like a series of small stories. There's one about a a weird little king that, you know, he has no friends and falls in love with a little flea and feeds the flea flesh. And the flea becomes as big as a little donkey. And you love, and it's disgusting but it's kind of sweet, you know, when they shoot on these insane, it's almost like a, you know, like Tarsem movies, like the cell, you know, or like, um, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Uh, or uh, the fall, like that, these crazy locations around the castles and things You're like, what the fuck is this? Anyways, it's another one that is just like visually robust, kind of grotesque. 
Um, I love a very lavish horror movie, like a very yeah, lavish. Like a, I yeah. love that. But not like Crimson Peak. It's it's like, yeah, like some weird, lavish, gory, lots of effects, like really great. You know, like European visual effects, mm-hmm. like feel different than American ones or something. Yeah. Like the element somehow feels designed a little bit better or something. Like, mm-hmm. got that vibe. Anyways, those are two. Those are good. That's good time. I love it. I love it. So I definitely got some movies to to add to my list. Hopefully the listeners have uh, some movies to add to their list as well. But let's go ahead and get a little bit deeper into The Final Girls. Thank you, Willem Dafoe. I appreciate that. So let's go, like, so we've, we've already gotten to a lot of the background stuff. And I've watched this movie a lot. It's a it's a movie that I throw on in the background quite often if I'm like working on things uh, just because it has a wonderful score to it. It looks amazing. So it's like it's a movie that you can sit there and be invested in if you want to be. But if you've seen the movie already, it's just a it's a really good movie to just like keep revisiting because there's too many jokes to keep up with, you know, that like I'll like hear and I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't remember that line. That's super funny. And one of those things that you can kind of uh, keep going back into and finding it. Um, in case you guys have been listening to this episode for 35 minutes and still have not figured out what The Final Girls is about, or if you haven't seen it by this point, sorry, spoilers as usual. But just uh, just in case, if you've been listening and don't know, Final Girls, you have uh, our main character, Max. She is goes. Uh, she's the daughter of a former movie star. She was the star of a slasher, and she dies tragically in a car accident. Max uh, then goes to a, a special anniversary screening of Camp uh, Bloodbath, where you know it's obviously kind of difficult for her to watch. The theater catches on fire, and boom, our characters are inside Camp Bloodbath. So, first question: Is there? like an assembled almost like full thing of camp bloodbath somewhere because like the challenges of trying to make a movie within a movie must have been really interesting to film like how much camp bloodbath footage do you actually have you might not be surprised to find out that there's almost nothing on the cutting room floor because we had such a limited amount of days to shoot the movie we shot it in what like 27 or 28 days or something um there's stunts and fire and action and there's scenes with 10 people talking to each other. And it was really intense to make that movie very fun, but very hard. And so every, you know, I, everything was shot listed. Uh, There's things online of like even some of the storyboards and how they are exactly like the movie. Every fucking shot, every sequence was like, you know, drawn, you know, just drawn out. Um, shot listed out little cartoons of everything and every day we just went in and we were like well today's a toughie we got to do 50 setups 50 most movies are like 14 <laughs> right you got to do 50 today otherwise uh, we don't have another chance to do this and there's no sequence and it has to be like this you know the the booby track sequence at the end you know the camera spin mm-hmm. and everyone die. that for instance that was like we got you got eight hours to do all this that's it and if you don't do it tonight that machine's going away, the cabin's being taken down, an actor leaves tomorrow, that's it. So we didn't like shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and figure it out later. The it was moments a lean, of bloodbath. It yeah, was the lean and mean. Bloodbath I've seen the movie were very 
meticulously designed and figured out beforehand because there's no other way to pull it off yeah other than to buy you know other than to like shoot the exact things that you're going to need we had a little bit of flexibility later but it was really exactly yeah so you were just running a real lean and mean production for this one like it just had to be tight and and i like that like you know because i feel if it, if you are if you have a strong enough vision of what you're trying to make and the story you're trying to tell, you know you're not gonna need all this extra footage and stuff later. And obviously that just kind of comes about as you know when you need it as a filmmaker. But yeah, I mean like, like there's stories about like Blood Simple or something. Like I remember like being in high school reading about Blood Simple, Coen Brothers' first movie, and it was like, the exact same thing. It was like we know we have this box of money and time. We know we have this amount of ambition. So how are we going to fit this ambition into this time? And it's like just doing your fucking homework, like showing up and shooting exactly what you think you're going to need. It's not always the best thing to do. Like, obviously, there's a lot of improvisation in the movie and Middle Ditch and Adam, you know, or mm-hmm. going. in moments like that, you know, you just set up a camera and you let him you know, go for it. But we knew the, the bigger action sequences and effect sequences that got to be super refined. So to answer your question, no, there's not a whole bloodbath. I was, but I bet if you asked the writers, they they did have a whole bloodbath. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they would have had to just like the the way they set up the lore for it, and uh, which I do love. Like uh, I love like it has enough similarities to Friday the Thirteenth, you know, to like you know tip the cap and all that stuff. But at the same time, the like burning, the burning was a huge kind of like cousin, like spiritual cousin. So mm. it was like a merging of ones that oh yeah that totally just i just watched the burning not too long ago as well um yeah, the so, score has a lot to do with it some of the mask has a little bit to do with it also oh man i didn't even i didn't even make that connection there but that is definitely like the perfect marriage of the film we so, tried to just mush together every like you know summer camp horror thing there's a, like sleepaway camp there's a lot of these movies and then all the sequels that came after we tried to just like mush mm-hmm. you know some of those things into one thing and then you know, create our own version of it. Yeah, and like, and that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I totally forgot. One of the the theme of this month. This is the last episode of this month for it, but uh, all of July I called it heat soaked horror. These are all movies that take place like in the summer daytime, but have specific reasons for it. And yeah. like you said, this is just like very reminiscent of like all those summer camp films that you've seen before. And, and, but it, and it just like works, you know, because I love, uh, the cinematography, the way that you guys use the, the bright colors of like that idyllic eighties summer vibe that you got from a lot of movies back then. So like there's, this movie is very warm to look at with the yellows and like the greens and I just love the look of it. So, I mean, you have that. This was a huge part of the conversations before we shot the movie was like, well, how's it going to look? Because those movies you're talking about, you know, sun so, you know, horror from the 70s and early 80s, they don't look that great. I mean, they're 16 millimeter usually, you know, mm-hmm. they're a little bit flat. Like, Friday the 13th isn't like an amazing looking film. And so the question was like, are you going to put our real kids in a movie that looks like a Grindhouse movie or something? Like, is that the idea? But for me, you know, we were using like the textures of those movies to create the world. You know, the references for me, for us, were way closer to things like Back to the Future, uh, you know, Pleasantville, um, uh, fuck, um, what's that, um, oh, God damn it, um, what's that Woody Allen movie with the movie theater? Here I go. 
Ugh, brain dead. There's too many Woody Allen movies. Uh, I, maybe we shouldn't even reference Woody Allen, right? <laughs> but, you know, those kinds of movies were the references about people getting sucked into movies. Even Last Action Hero was one of the ones for us. And so, if, and Wizard of Oz. So if you're going to have kids go sucked into a movie, part of the idea was you don't try to go be orthodox about recreating the look of those movies. Also, like, what's fun about watching that for 70 minutes of the movie? It was they're going to get sucked into a cinematic universe where, like, mm-hmm. you can tell the flowers are synthetic. You can tell everything is hyper real. It's got a dream quality because mm-hmm. in a way, this is a Max's fever dream of her wish, which is to hang out with her mom again, which were the dreams I was having while editing Harold and Kumar because I had lost my dad. So it was trying to sort of fuse a lot of those other ideas into it. So it wasn't going to just be a parody you know, pastiche, you know, meta movie, it was going to have some other layer on top of it mm-hmm. that felt personal or extra beautiful or extra, you know, amp- amplified, which is why, like, they can hear the music and they can get stuck in cuts and flashbacks because they're stuck in a movie. They're not stuck in that movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Was figuring out the the mechanics for that, was that more something that you guys figured out while you were filming or was or did they already write that kind of stuff into the script as far as like how you were going to, like you said, like you change to the black and white when you're in the flashback and the, the looping, uh, the scene where they're kind of, the camera still yeah. contracts them in the circle and like figuring out this loop in and the, the yeah. fact that the credits are like 3D even, you know. I think what the script had when the guys, they sent me their draft. We had talked about, actually, I knew Mark Fortin from college. And he started to date Josh when they graduated. And I became friendly with them and moved out to California. But they sent me the draft. And the idea was always the idea. Max, her mom, stuck in a summer camp horror movie, got to survive. It's second chance to be with mom. Very emotional. I think the things that I, and I worked on this script with them, heavily and frequently for like a year or two as we were getting the money together and the cast. But I think what I tried to do with it was add more of that meta stuff, like add those ideas stuck in a flashback movie starts over. Things are looping. You know, what's that going to look like play with the big idea, which is we're stuck in a movie and the mm-hmm. movie is the bad guy. Like the movie is the cinematic quicksand. Like, you know, those fever stress dreams you have. Yeah. But like, you can't walk or you're trying to hit someone, but you can't hit them or you're, you know, like you can't move forward. We were like, well, that is a bit of a way to, you know, to show her purple rustic Cairo is the movie is to show her grief is to show her grief, you know? And so I was like, let's add more of those. It is plus it's part of the pleasure of this concept mm-hmm. and the jokes. I tried to infuse a lot more humor, you know, our real kids being bumped up against these like Reagan era sex bomb idiot, you know, dummies. That just seemed like a great place to get a little bit more, you know, just humor. Mm-hmm. But the big idea with all those things, the meta and the humor was to serve what always existed as this beautiful ending of letting go of this person you love, of like letting the grief come through you. So and the strategy was if we can get an audience to be like laughing, charmed, disarmed, you know, for three quarters of the movie, when the heart comes at the end, you're going to cry because there's there's no armor. You are mm-hmm. wide open because you are you're in love with these characters. 
and you're even in love with the movie we're hoping and so when the you know when we try to get you to feel you will feel you're not going to have defenses up it was a strategy of you know yeah um, oh and i mean and that, that's worked. what i tried to um imbue into it yeah yeah i mean it definitely worked because like i said it was like uh setting that up was kind of the catch-22 for max of the situation that like okay she does get to see her mom but it's not her mom you know because it's you yeah. know the movie version of her and she's kind of stuck in this loop so it's like you know of the you know your wish is granted but of course it doesn't go exactly the way you wanted and then was it um uh, between the writers it, i remember i saw something one of their parents was in the exorcist was that josh's that's josh's dad yeah jason miller and uh, was a great actor but he was the priest in the exorcist and the idea for the script came out of josh's personal experience of you know losing his father and having this very surreal feeling of having missing to... his dad and the only way to re-experience his dad was watching him in a movie get killed like there's something so intellectual and you it's know, something it's very surreal like you said like there's, it's just like yeah dreamy and but emotional and and that was i think the the nugget of the idea that's what their draft was and then when i read it just because of where i was in my life i was like yeah i get this like i'm feeling exactly what you guys are writing like i'm mm-hmm. having these dreams every night where i'm just hanging out with my dad that's it. I'm just walking yeah. around eating pizza in Manhattan. Like, that's my experience, and that's this movie. That's Max's in that dream. You know. Yeah, and I mean, and it hits. Like, I mean, it. It. I remember definitely the first time I watched it when we have the scene where Nancy is luring out Billy, and I mean, as soon as Betty Davis' eyes kicks in again, yeah. I got I get goosebumps every time. Like that, their whole exchange beforehand, like uh, Malin Ackerman and Tessa, just—I mean—knocked that scene out of the park. I mean, and you imagine, feel it. and like imagine this because that is the image that's online. That's you know the GIF, and that's the song, and in its own little way, in the way this, in its own little way, this little movie that is an iconic moment in it. But imagine this. Imagine that while we're shooting that goodbye scene in the church, right before the song comes on, imagine me, you know, and Josh and Mark sort of sitting in the back, looking at the monitor, hearing those lines spoken, you know, you know, I can't live without you. Don't leave mom. And we're crying because even though that's two women on screen, it's a daughter and a mother, it's not a son and a father that's our heart like that's our feelings that's your moment and we're hearing someone say that yeah like that's us telling our dad don't die please don't die and we're crying so like we you know it's like we're having our own like cathartic moment while that scene is being filmed and so there is something magical with fucking movies where like you only can hope that someone can feel the could feel some kind of weird human psychic energy in the film mm-hmm. but who knows if it's ever going to happen but certainly in that moment that was a real thing that was going on for a lot of us fucking and, cinematic therapy like that's what we love to see yeah. you know we love it and <laughs> i mean it really is like just like every time i you know 
revisit it, I, I feel those same emotions and like, yeah, I can just only imagine like what the mood was on set. Like while, like you said, like while that scene was happening, just like you describing that, like, you know, like, beautiful. like made me feel that note on Betty, Di- on Betty Davis eyes, this movie like gave me a whole new love and appreciation for it. It's one of my go-to karaoke songs. <laughs> so when when the COVID is done, I'll invite you out to karaoke and I will sing the song for you. It's... Mine is B-52's Love Shack. I sing it as loud as I possibly oh, can. Oh, that's a that's a, also a karaoke classic. I mean, you can never go wrong when you do Love Shack. And But yeah, like I, I love that song. Speaking of the music, I absolutely love uh, the score as well. Um, I actually listen to the score sometimes when I'm doing yoga um, oh, by uh, Gregory Gra- uh, Gregory James Jenkins. And okay. he did the score for Held and Kumar as well with you, correct? Was that? He did, a, he did a song. He did a couple of tracks, not the full score. He didn't do the orchestra stuff, but he did that. Um, here's a psychedelic claymation sequence in that movie. Mm. That the same people who oh, made yeah. like Tito and the Two Strings and Coraline did that. Mm-hmm. That was insane also, but he did the crazy song that's in that sequence. And, um, but he also did all of my shorts, all those early shorts he'd scored, and I roped him into this movie. There's good, there's an interesting story about the score if you'd like to. Oh, Do you know please. about it? It's like written about. There's like, it's in the. I don't think I, I don't think I do. Um, but yeah, but I absolutely love the score. So please give me the trivia. Or shit was crazy because editing the movie was a mess. So. <sighs> Editing the movie was as insane, if not more insane, than shooting the movie, which was a surprise to me. I thought that would be relaxing part of the movie. But it ended up just being, we were in New York, and we were cutting the movies. Me, Debbie, the editor, and Greg, the composer, and an assistant editor. Four of us only. No adult supervision. But we had let go of an editor before we started. There was a woman who had been cutting while we were shooting, and it wasn't working out. I was shooting too much and she couldn't keep up. And it just, it wasn't the right, it just didn't seem like the right great combination. So mm-hmm. we let her go and brought in someone new to begin. And when we got to the first day of editing, normally that's a cute fucking dog. What's this that is, dog's name? This is Harley. Uh, uh, is my little buddy. He's He's been just chilling on the floor this whole time, but he finally woke up. up here. Want to ask me a question? No, he's good. We, the day day one of editing, you know, usually what happens is you see in like an assembly of the movie. The editors put together some rough version of the whole movie and you get to work on that. Well, we didn't have one of those. We had to start from fully from scratch. There was nothing to work with. And so suddenly we were like, you know, eight or seven weeks behind. We were editing like seven days a week, like relentless, 15-hour days. It was the same kind of crazy pace. And normally with a movie... You're, and this is not a good thing, but there's a, someone there doing a temp score. So you're cutting mm-hmm. scenes and someone's pulling music from other movies just to give it a sense. This is a temp score and you're cutting that. We didn't have time for that shit. We didn't have any, there was no money for someone to pull soundtracks. We just had Greg there who's like a music making machine. Mm-hmm. And he was in his own room next door and our fucking fucked up process, although it was the most creative thing and I try to keep it going with every movie that I make, is that we would quickly cut a scene, maybe we would spend a day on a scene, and we'd bring that rough version to Greg's room, and then Greg would score it. And I would just go back and forth from editing oh, wow. to score. We'd fuck with music, and then we'd cut scene two, bring it into Greg's room, and then he would score it. Scene three, we would cut, bring it into Greg's room, he would score it. So we were writing the music 
And we were very much doing it, you know, Craig is the musical genius, but I sit there and I'm like, that's a good sound. Maybe that's the theme. Weave that, you know, so we're, I'm, we're directing it together. So it was like we were writing the movie as we were editing the movie in sequence. So the movie was, we were giving birth to the movie in order. Like, you know, mm -hmm. on week five, we were like, wow, I can't wait to see how this movie ends. You know, that we didn't know. <laughs> I'm so curious how this movie is going to wrap itself up. I can't <laughs> wait to see. It was like it was, you know, like the photograph from Back to the Future where mm -hmm. he's disappearing. It was like the reverse of that. It was slowly coming into focus what it was. And it was a psychotic way to do it. He wrote that whole score and the amount of time it took us to edit the movie. And that's the story of the score. I mean, I guess that's one way to get your second wind, you know, when you're when you're trying to wrap everything up and like get this mood to where it is. The and... room was filled with hot dog wrappers and pizza boxes. He was sleeping there. I walked in one afternoon and it just smelled like a locker room. Like it was truly fucking disgusting. He was up all night writing music, you know? Um, and we hadn't heard what the whole thing would sound or look like until we had finished the first pass. Wow. And then we got to speak it. It was really wonderful. You know, I mean, you know, the 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 process uh, you adapt it to the situation you know and i think it definitely you it felt that way because like the the score definitely felt like you know intentional and interwoven into the film it didn't it wasn't just music that you guys did throw on top of it to like set moods and things like that like it had purpose to it and especially with like you know having the different sound cues too like how the characters are also like hearing the sounds and sound cues inside the inside the movie while they're in camp bloodbath so it's like it, there's there's so much going on but i absolutely love that score like so much i listen to it quite regularly yeah, it's, funny. yeah it's uh so good so good <laughs> so let's touch on this cast a little bit because like i said you you guys assembled this all-star ensemble cast I mean, how, like, did you have, like, people in mind when you guys, uh, when you got the script already? Like, just, I mean, Adam Devine, Angela Trimber, to uh, Malin Ackerman, and, like, how did all these people come together, Tom Middleditch, and, like, just the way they all meshed together? I think there was something in the beginning, because there were just, I just had to keep on fielding this question of, like, what's the tone? People just love asking you, what's the tone? And I, it's impossible to kind of describe tone. You know what I mean? It's like, what's your mood? I don't know. Is it, like, what is it? Like, and so I thought that it would be really helpful that you could see the tone in the cast. Meaning mm -hmm. that, yeah, it would be very funny. So there'd be Thomas and Adam and Angela, you know? And that would be funny and also winky. But it's also going to be like kind of dramatic. There's Thaisa. There's Molly, you know? But it's also going to be like this like kind of poppy like this kind of pop, you know, meta construction. So there's, you know, fucking Nina, you know, like mm -hmm. poppy TV vampire diaries. Bring in the Nina's sass, yeah. Too. But then it's also going to be like cool and like smart and like a little bit indie. Like it's not just going to be some dopey ass parody. And there's Alia, you know, Shawcat, mm -hmm. kind of giving it some of that gravity. And, and so I just thought instead of me just like constantly trying to reason out what people talk, I could cast the tone with how they actually came together. Like Thomas and I were friends, you know, and Thomas, he was, he was in a couple of my shorts and so genius, hilarious. Also huge horror guy, you know, mm. he's not just like a video game dude, loves horror, was writing his own horror, horror movie. And so I just gave him the script and I was like, who do you want to play? It's <laughs> like the role, that's it. Adam was similar. Adam, I had met on some other movies and we became friendly and, 
I've not worked with him so many times. You know, he's in so many of my things. Such a great guy, easy to work with, funny. And um, he seemed like the perfect dude to be that, you know, fucking halter top, you know, tight pants and kind of the zinger, if you will. Guy. But give it a, enough self awareness, like a little bit of a wink that, you know, he's like, he's not just being that guy. He's kind of also subtly making fun of that guy. And then Thaisa rolled in, and we were like, God, that's what a cellophane thin skin she has you know like mm. that emotion is raw and real and right there she just like know? really lets you in like she does have this something about that like yeah like there's not a veil there in front of her and like that's yeah. the I mean, the emotional imagine, core of the film you need that exactly and imagine if imagine if the actor playing her was snarky or cynical like mm-hmm. it would and who and poking fun just like the rest of the gang like it, it wouldn't have felt the same way. And so she, you know, she read for it. We were fans of hers and she loved it. And so that was really, you know, that was necessary. Alia, I was like begging Alia. I was like, I wanted to know her. And I thought she was so talented and so cool. And made such interesting choices. And you can kind of tell she curates her choices. And, you know, I, I think I just cold emailed her and told her why it was personal and fun and what a, what a summer it'll be just come to camp with us and that's kind of how it came together yeah like i mean just everyone is everyone was so good and i mean like aside from tasa and uh malin like uh i wanted to point out and alexander ludwig i love the way his character is written like you know the you think he you know he looks like the typical jock you know, aggro kind of guy. You wonder if his feelings like towards Max are genuine at all. And it's just like, he's a very genuine dude the whole time. And he's like, becomes like the Fred Jones of the group. If they were a Scooby gang, you know, making the plan. And like, that was a really cool written character. Everything was, yeah, he, I mean, obviously, I mean, I did not, Alex, I'll tell you, like, I didn't visualize the character like Alexander, Mm -hmm. not at all, but that's where we ended up. He he really wanted the role. He was wouldn't stop emailing me. I love this thing. He just wouldn't. Talk. He was a relentless guy, and I, I respected that. I needed a team of lunatics to pull this thing off. But you're right. Like every character is trying to be seen through a prism of like empathy. Like everyone's got humanity to them. The movie was a. It's like a horror movie where the blood, you know, the bloodlust and the kill count is what's so fun about a horror movies about grief. So you're trying to really dimensionalize what could be really flat. What's cool about Ludwig is that the only character in the movie that admits that they're scared is this white bro guy, you know, frat looking Aryan dude. He's the only one that admits his vulnerability in that way. And that was conscious. We were like, well, that is good. That's a moment for that guy that's a way to show that some of these aggro shithead you know guys are deep down you know terrified and then i forgot to say anything about Malin, which is that casting her again there was you know there was must have been something about this moment like Malin, you know you used to her being funny and you know beautiful sexy even in some of these movies but she had just become a mom, like mm. right before shooting it. She'd just given birth to a baby for first kid. And so she was, you know, 
it was a whole new experience in a whole different mindset. Yeah. Never played a mom before, you know? So again, it was like roping in the personal lives of the filmmakers of the cast. She got to play a mom. So those scenes where she's being incredibly maternal and sweet and caregiving are all things that she's just taking from the very beginning of learning how to be a mom. Her kid was on set. Her kid was like a peanut, like that big. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like you said, like, that's so interesting of just the way that, like you said, that you were able to bring in uh, actors and their personal feelings into it. You, your feelings, the writer's feelings and the way that came together. So it's like, you know, it was this perfect blend and, you know, just, it took every little piece and just, it, it really just comes together so well. Like, and like you said, yeah, like every, everyone is feeling grief. Everyone gets their moment, you know, like uh, Vicky, Nina, the sassy girl, she gets to have her redemption and her turnaround. And she explains why she's sassy. You know, yeah. she's like, that's why I'm a mean girl, you know, and right, right before she gets it and does something selfless in the end. So those are all really, yeah, we, we did try to, to you know, we, we, it, was a, it was a horror movie about feelings. It was a horror movie about loss and about real people. You wanted to feel all the deaths and everything. Yeah. So we tried to give everyone a little, at least one little moment like that. So yeah, we weren't just treating people like, you know, bags of guts just to murder yeah even the dummies even the dummies and which is funny like what brings me like next like it's so funny like you know the majority of this conversation we're we're not even talking about the horror elements of it and that's funny even for me because like you know like those are some of my favorite things or like you know because it's not that those aren't there either like you get we get the fun kills um we get some some fun action sequences you know especially in the third act when you have the booby trapped house and then but then you still infuse those emotions into the the final action scene, the final showdown. So it's like, I love how there is still all these wonderful horror elements here. But, you know, the emotional things are the ones that stand out to me. And then we have the comedy aspects as well. Um, one of the segments I usually do towards the beginning of this show is called the genre grinder. And we kind of talk about, you know, the subgenres that you incorporated into the film and and like you know it it really does just like have all this this mixture of everything like between the emotion the comedy and the horror elements it's all balanced like pretty damn well thank you i mean that again that's what made it hard to finance and sell but it's what makes it so special and and it's so fucking stupid that those things mm -hmm. that that is makes it hard for business people because it's more representative of real life than a straight genre. Like if someone asked you to describe your day yesterday and you just like told me the story of your day, it would have horror, comedy, melancholy, emotion, anxiety, mm -hmm. panic, compassion. It would have all of the romance. It would have all of those things just in the course of your day. And it wouldn't be whiplashy or strange because you would just be telling me your story from a particular point of view with a strong voice. And so those are my favorite movies that do that. And they seem so much more representative of the way life exists than everything is dramatic and heavy. Yeah. That's not the full truth. 
and everything is a light whimsical comedy. Well, that's not exactly accurate either. It's, it's and both. So I like movies that give me the whole spectrum of feeling because in any moment of your day, you're kind of experiencing life like that. And that's what this movie and so many of the movies I, I make attempt to do, you know? You yeah. cry, you laugh, you're scared, you're, you know, panicked. It's, it's you know, whatever, it's stressful. And then, and it's very exciting as a filmmaker to try to use film to create those feeling states, to try to squeeze the, the most you can out of the medium to give you that feeling in a cinematic way. So like, that sequence you just you could bring up like that booby trap thing, you know, it's it's almost like less a horror sequence than it is mm -hmm. a like visual an attempt at a visual representation of a fucking panic attack, you know, like a, a dream panic, like someone's coming after you and everything's going wrong and you know you gotta move and you that know, flight or fight, <laughs> yeah. And so how do you how do you make the audience feel as stabilized and dizzy and panicked and it's things are moving faster and faster and faster and faster how can you do that that's not just cut it really fast you know like how can you do it in a different way and so that's where that idea came out of you know even the looping thing that you brought up like well how can you make them feel like they are stuck in quicksand that no matter what they say they can't move forward it's almost like video game logic you know mm -hmm. um well, what's a visual way to make the audience feel dizzy and stuck you yeah. know and well like literally i'm just fucking making really dizzy you know exactly so it's like when you're when you're able to incorporate all those things it's like you just having all those different genres you just have more tools in your in your belt to be able to create those feelings and experiences for the audience to have because like that's why when people ask me like why I love horror and like why I want to make horror films kind of like because it makes things more possible like you know you don't have those rules you know so whenever you can just literally bring in you know reach from this cabinet reach from this cabinet throw it in the bowl and it's going to work out then like why wouldn't you want to do more of that and you know, and it's like when you have a film that has like just such an overall, like you said, like if everything that happened in it is dramatic or everything mm -hmm. in it's whimsical, then you're reminded that you're watching a movie versus, like you said, whether you're watching someone process real emotions in real time as well, because, you know, they are in a movie that happens at a certain time as well. So it's like the whole movie, everything is kind of happening for the most part in real time, minus like, you know, that first loop at the very beginning of the film yeah and and something that was inspiring about this script when you first read it if you're a you know if you're a filmmaker and you think visually a lot and you also love fucking movies and you've wanted to make them since you were like a little kid is like that this movie you know some movies don't need that kind of hyper visual expressive quality some movies it's better to kind of hang back and just watch what's going on but this movie, it didn't just need it, it like required it. Like in a way, the camera was the bad guy, you know, the movie was the bad guy. So, and it's also a movie about movies. So it like, you know, it, it's like begging you to do something hyper cinematic with mm -hmm. it, you know, like you're using the movie 
trap people and all this stuff. So as a director, you're like, oh, this is fucking great. You know, I love when movies are self-expression of a person's voice. So, you know, when, when people are really trying to push the medium, that's the fucking, you know, Leo Corot thing I said earlier. And it's always so great to watch young filmmakers just be so in love with movies that they're really going for it, bending the genre for their own purposes. And so, you know, sometimes that's not appropriate, you know, mm-hmm. for some kinds of movies. But for this one, it was like the movie's begging for that. So just go for it and like be as flamboyant and loud and as possible because it's only going to help hold all those different tones mm-hmm. together is if there's a very strong style, that's yeah. almost like the jello mold. That's going to, you know, that's the umbrella that all these different things can exist inside, which is so hard to, you know, understand if you're a guy in an office with a checkbook right oh man i love it i love that the way you put that when you said the camera is the bad guy you fucking blew my mind i don't know what to do with that information right now but that's a really cool concept i like that and and yeah like there's just there there's so much there's so much going on in this movie but the fact that like you said you were able to plan it out and execute it and like you said like if there if there's an idea and you're able to do it why not do it you know, like be as like, I, I, I really hate the, the, the criticism style over substance because style, style is substance. Is substance. Style, style is substance. Is, style, if it's done right, style is substance. And it's insane that people say that it's not. I don't know what the fuck that is. Style is substance. You watch certain film noir, that is a style. And it becomes not all the substance, but it, it is. Of course it does. Mm-hmm. The way prose is written, the way poetry is written, the style is fashion, music. Doesn't the that style is substance? And so the idea that you're going to try to leech your story of style, expression of a voice and a point of view, and just hang back, you know what I mean, and watch something, that is a you know that's like a photograph. That's that has nothing to do with cinema. It's just photographs of people talking. What, what's exciting about that? I want to be told a story. You listen to an amazing monologist tell you a story and you are just, that style, you know, the rhythm of it, the way that they're surprising you. I had a quote above my computer in the room. I have it in all my things, but started on Final Girl. There's a Chinese filmmaker named King Hu and he's really visually insane person and his, one of his famous quotes is, the audience is the camera. I don't want the audience to just sit back and watch. I want them to move. And you're like, yeah, let's fucking dance together. Like, the filmmakers and the audience are going to dance. You're going to fucking get up and move. And that's how I think about it. And those are the movies that I love the most, you know? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I agree, like, 100%. Like, the way that you said it's like a it's like a photograph, like, and the fact that, you know, yeah, why would you lead yourself of indulging yourself? I hate, like, when people call directors, like, self-indulgence, like, shouldn't you be indulging the thing that you're making? Like, yes, you're making it for an audience, but you're also fulfilling your fancy because you're a filmmaker, you're a dreamer, that's kind of what you're doing, and so when you, when you just, when you give all of that to an audience, and when you're able to just make someone feel something just by a visual, alone and then just on top of what you can add on top of that with the the context of the script and everything 
then there you go. Like then you got something special there. So it's just like, it's something I've never, I've never understood, but yeah, like this movie is the final girls. It's, it's so stylish and absolutely. I love every minute of it. And so as we're, as we're wrapping this conversation up, I had uh, a couple other questions because there were a couple like weird things that I noticed. So one, one, uh, I mean, not about the movie. So how did you feel about the same year there being another movie called Final Girl and they are completely different, but it was like, it's one of, it's still kind of like that Armageddon deep impact kind of scenario. Yeah, and Ludwig's in both of them. And Ludwig is in both of them. So I always find that wild. And I love Tyler Shields. He's actually like one of my favorite photographers. So it was just like, that's such a, a strange, you know, coincidence to happen. I don't know. That movie was before us, actually. I think that that movie had been shot. Or something. Mm, I've yeah. never seen that movie. I saw the trailer for that movie. It's clearly very different. Oh, um, yeah. Completely different. Completely different. Yeah. Just Yeah. we. I think we had the fear, like, we could change the name of our movie, but, like, why Why take some defensive tact for some movie that's even smaller than lesser known than ours? Mm-hmm. You know, and The Final Girls is that great, you know, Carol Clover concept, and it seemed to put our movie in a slightly more, like, I shouldn't say, but like, you know, that's an intellectual title, you know, which comes from film criticism. I mean, the movie, the filmmakers know what they're playing with. Mm-hmm. So we just kept it. But yeah, we were certainly aware of it as we were making the movie and just uh, decided that we would be stronger, stronger yeah. out the gate than that one. As long as you're, as long as you're confident, it's like, why, yeah, like changing the name of it would have been just like a, oh, like, no, I'm not you know, that you're compromising the movie because totally not. But I just found that they're so, different. they're so different. Like that movie is. Oh yeah. Super, yeah, super, super different. Uh, I have seen it. It's a, it's, it's good. It, they're, they're, <laughs> it's good. It's no, it's no Ellie. It's no final girls, but it's, it's good. Um, but, and, and it's like, so another question I had that was like, do you guys like, cause I, I noticed like when you like Google it, the movie kind of gets uh, wrapped in with like a, with like the cabin in the woods and like Tucker and Dale, like that kind of vibe, because I mean the meta vibes there, but like, do you consider the final girls like parody or satire? No, I don't. And I tried to fight against it. The cabin in the woods is great. We love that movie. And Tucker mm. and Dale, I love as well. But you know, again, like for me, of course it's hard to of course it's hard to ignore those you know more Mm. those obvious and simple connections yeah like we're meta we're self-aware we're doing fucking kiki mama like we're doing for sure we're doing those things the more subtle level is that we're doing those things in service of what is more personal filmmaking a little more soulful um a little more thoughtful in terms of its human angle you know, mm-hmm. a horror movie about loss is the idea. Um, you know, a personal movie about losing our parents is the idea. Um, you know, a fever dream about wishing you were the parent. Back to the Future, Purple Rose of Cairo. Those were the Pleasantville. Those were the touchstones. You know, uh, you wouldn't call Pleasantville, for instance, like a parody. Mm-hmm. It's not, even though it's fully satirizing and doing a parody of like black and white 50s all-american suburban weaver the beaver fucking yeah. bullshit it's somehow different than that and we got a little bit pegged as it's tucker and dale it's like a clever meta spoon mm. and 
I just never considered it like that. Listen, if people like that part of it, and that is the fun part of it for sure. But and Cabin in the Woods is dope, but like, yeah, for sure. I. But with those ones, it's like the priority and the premise was more to poke fun and to do the satire versus the way you guys do it. You're using it as a emotional priority. Yeah, for the film for us, versus the imagine, like the movie that we're making is the last is you know is that last half hour and everything before that is um, different strategies and techniques and ideas to get us to that's the core of the movie. And, and some people just got caught up in like the fun and games stuff was actually the whole of the, wasn't what we were trying to do, but listen, love whatever you love and enjoy it as much, you know, whatever you like out of it. For sure. So as I, I do have a question about the ending because we do, we get the ending, we get like kind of a stinger. I know there was an idea for a sequel but it was obviously just kind of due to, you know, the way that the movie would have performed and those kind of factors. Is it still something that you guys keep in the back of your mind right now? I know it's five years out, so it's like, is it still something that's kind of in the back of your mind if the if the opportunity arose or? Yeah, if the opportunity arose, it'd be fucking great. But like, you know, yeah, like we would have loved to have done that like in the year afterwards. We yeah. would have loved that or turn it into a TV show, you know, like Ooh, the guys have put on the show yeah. or like a movie would have been great but it was it was it was part of the discipline discipline is not a good word but it was part of the way that the movie performed and what was released that made it kind of hard to make the argument that this movie should receive another bunch of millions of dollars mm-hmm. to make us get everyone back together you know do it all so it, we would love i think everyone would love to do it you know but. Still, everyone's still friends, but I can't imagine how anyone's gonna throw down a bunch of money for. Yeah, I mean the business is the business, you know. That's just kind of how the things work. But I, for one, obviously would love to keep on telling people to to watch it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can always work because you can always just kind of go for also, you know, where kind of horror is in that time, you know, and kind of you know pick it up in that aspect and the way you tie it in, which also makes me beg the question of so are they they're dead right at the end of the movie are they dead like they die in the movie theater and that's why they wake up in the hospital with their wounds from inside camp bloodbath they're dead right (laughs) oh we we shan't tell we shan't tell that secret i do love that it's just like not explained whatsoever the transport into the movie not explained whatsoever i do enjoy that but that's that's where my theory is that's where i say like, i'll say this i like i used to be frustrated by this but i now really like when movies don't close the circle at the end i mm-hmm. used to hate that it was now i like when they don't close the circle at the end because then the movie kind of stays alive for a little bit longer you know it just doesn't quite it's like waking up in the middle of a dream mm-hmm. you know and so, so it's that. I can say that the original ending did not have the friends alive. Mm. We did the one thing. We only reshot one thing. That's it for like one day only. And the only thing we reshot was the ending. And um, the original ending was that just Max and uh, and Ludwig wake up, and they're the only ones alive. And everyone else really did die. 
and they're the only ones that really survive. And um, and but then they're stuck in the sequel, obviously, because they're in a double feature. <laughs> like they just moved on to the next reel, and they got a whole other fucking movie to to survive. God, what a cool idea! What a good movie. But but um, but it was a little bit too depressing. Everyone, yeah. those friends were so delightful. You know, you want to see them. Oh yeah, it's like you had been such through such an emotional journey by that point. So yeah, it would have been just like, oh man, if you if you did kind of. But I yeah, did. It didn't break the logic too much to think mm-hmm. that like a video game for you know the second level people might get regenerated to kind of like go through it again or something like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, I like the I like how you said it's like yeah the movie stays alive for a little bit longer and you did have that opportunity to you did you know have that as well to be able to branch off into a sequel TV show yeah. what have you a TV maybe show maybe one day maybe one day TV show I didn't think about that TV show would be really fun but um but you know it, it I would love to see it continue in any iteration and I also love uh, at the very end of the movie uh, I always love gag reels at the end of credits why don't more movies do that anymore you know and and I love that it, it you it, like because you showed that and I was just like, man, this movie, I bet, was just so much fun to work on. Like, what was the most fun day you guys had on set? That's a long, that's a long time ago. What's the most fun day? I mean, that gag reel was real. Like, I'll tell you, like, that first movie was not so easy to make. None of them were easy to make, but like, it was tough. And there was something just so it was like being a camp counselor. That's what I felt <laughs> like. I was like a head counselor at a summer camp where no adults were allowed. And it was just me and the crew in the cast. We were all about the same age, making something that we really believed in. It was like the most fun, all of it. We were eating alligators, alligator for lunch. We were in Baton Rouge doing it. It was fucking nuts. Ironically, sometimes in, when you think about things, it's, it's, I think, well, you tell me if this is true for you just in your life, but like somehow like the most brutal days are the ones that have the most long-lasting memories like you know like the trauma of surviving the hardest fucking shit mm-hmm. is what you remember the most like the easy fun easy breezy laughy light day it doesn't really leave that much of a mark in your memory so i maybe i'd say our last something about our last day was the one that sticks out like the most that last day where everyone was sad to leave camp you know mm-hmm. our last day at the camp Everyone was, because we shot the first act of the movie last. Oh, so okay. everyone would already know each other and be friends and we could go do meet, meeting the characters and they would all mm. have a report. So we shot the camp stuff first. And, but our last day at camp was Billy jumping out of the window on fire. Great fire know. stunt, by the way. Oh man, so but great. Them, them running in cinematic slow-mo with the fire. All that stuff was done on the last day. Uh, along with Max, all that stuff in the back of the house, Max climbing out the window. That was all the last night shoot. Nights were short. It was the summer. And we also had to pick up some other stuff. So across camp, we had a splinter unit shooting the, some of the Max transitions of her like walking back and forth to the infirmary with her mom and the machete and lighting that and getting the smoke going and shooting some of the stuff, that infirmary close-ups and things like that. And so there were two units going and both units were having multiple disasters simultaneously. <laughs> and we were in a race against time because the sun was coming up and there's nothing you can do when the sun comes up. And the, the that day, the sun up day, camp, it was a Girl Scout camp. And all these like eight-year-old girls were like coming to camp, 
like when the sun rose. So it was a race against everything. And I just remember like the whole crew, people, hair and makeup, everyone in the trailers came out and put out their lawn chair and watched as you know, the stuntman jumped out on fire, applauding, eating popcorn like they were watching the movie. Then I'd like get on a gator, fucking fly across camp, you know, and like shoot those inserts and then like and fly back and there'd be a disaster. We couldn't do the stunt again. The guys forgot the CO2, whatever was going on. Like the light broke, like just like back and forth from mess to mess. I think we were drinking. I was probably smoking weed. It was like just like a last night party disaster. And um, I'll never forget it. And the whole cast and crew, I'll never forget it. It was the most exhilarating night. And we finished that, like those shots of like the dude on fire chasing mm-hmm. Marlon and Alex and Alisa. You know, that was so down to the minute. The sun is coming up. We like did that one time. That's it. We had like all of our cameras. We had like a broken body that we rejiggered to work just so there would be a third camera on it. Like it was unmanned or like I did it or something. It was just like full on film school gorilla. And we did it. It was unbelievable. This one fucking focus puller. I don't, I don't know if he was high or whatever, but this one dude like pulled this, you know, focus pulling, you know what that uh-huh. is? Yeah. It was night. It was like a what off, like a 230 millimeter, some crazy long ass lens, fire stunt, four characters. He pulled, I need one chance to get it right. And he pulled this focus like a motherfucker. Like it is, was perfect. Only one shot, then the sun cracked open. And I remember everyone just like, like a football touchdown, like dumping Gatorade. Like he got the big round of applause at the end. You know what I mean? Like just great vibe. And, um, and the second the sun cracked open, we had ruined the camp. The, all the grass was mud. You know, we we're all fucking fucked up. The, house, the cabin was a disaster. There was all this like fire extinguisher goop on all the plants because we were putting the guy out all night long. We were all exhausted at crying. We, we pulled it off. And then like a bunch of eight-year-old girls just showed up ready to have a summer. <laughs> <laughs> like at the same, wow. it's a wrap. And the girls showed up. They're like, oh my God, wow. get out of here. So but, I remember that that every day was like that, but that was very memorable. Yeah, I mean that makes sense because it's like you know that's like you know you you remember like you know the the stress and the hell of it all, but it like just makes it so much that so much more empowering, you know, like especially like while you're doing the shoot and you're coming up with these solutions on the fly, you know, because it's like I saw somebody say like you know dire- directors, you're just a professional problem solver. Like, and that's like all you're kind of doing, like, and, 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 and I get like that kind of rush whenever I'm on a set and it's like, something's going wrong. And then it's like, you figure out just like some yeah. work around and then you're like, oh yeah, okay. That works. And like, you said, it's it like, it feels like life or death. It feels like you're fighting gravity. Like it feels like you're just constantly trying to just fight gravity, trying to pull you down and time is trying to destroy your plans. I, I remember just like getting off that like go-kart thing and coming back to the main unit and like the DP just like on his back, like, this is a mess. This is a disaster. I'm like, all right, uh, I'm going to go back over here now. And then it's like, leaving. You'll be fine. Figure it out. <laughs> you're going to be just fine. You're going to be you're gonna just be fine. fine. I got to go over here. I'll see you in a second. Ah, oh, man. I love that. I love that. And it's just like another one of those things. It's just like everything, like you said, just like has to come together at the right point and just like, you know, step for step and everybody's together on it. And I can only imagine that is just like, you know, what that kind of feeling is like once you, once you finish out something like that and it it shows. 
it felt like last day of camp. That's why that gag reels in the movie is because really just not wanting to forget how that felt. Like it's like a, you know, you know the last day of camp. Mm-hmm. Friends forever. Give me your number. You right. Know, like, it's like the end of the world. Like. Yeah, like you're not gonna see them ever again. So it's just like it's like we just need to have every ounce of fun left in this and and it, and it shows like it just it really does show like through the film there just there's just a genuine earnestness throughout the film that you can really feel like you said like with the by the time that the characters like you know have meshed and like they have this rapport together and you know and like there is just that magic of that magic of being at summer camp and uh and I love that 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 you could recreate that and like get to have the experience as adults obviously and uh, and it, and it really shows. So I, I love this movie. Thanks, man. Yeah, man. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This conversation was fantastic. Um, do you have anything that you're working on that you want to tell the people about in the future? Or? Yeah. I mean, I just finished a movie. You know, I finished a movie in quarantine. We finished doing the music and the mix and the, and, um, the effects and everything. Uh, once this happened, I shot it. Uh, over the summer, and it, you know, I did Harold and Kumar, big one, Final Girls, little one, then I did a big one after that, this romantic comedy, and then this was another little one, kind of Final Girls, mashup of genres. It's a silent film. retreat, isn't that what it's called? Silent retreat. I made a movie. I made a movie about four idiots who go on a silent meditation retreat and and lose their and lose their minds and. 20 minutes into the film, it becomes like a silent comedy, like a Buster Keaton yes, yes, yes. comedy at a meditation retreat. But like Final Girls, it's this sneaky, uppy, emotional, you know, kind of pure thing at the end. But it's very sort of funny and absurd building up to that. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, a cosmic cousin or something with Final Girls, but there's no horror in it or anything. But it's another very beautiful little uh, contained movie that sort of um, yeah, has sort of similar good vibes and teaches you how to meditate, you know, like got a lot of that wisdom in it. And it's also got a lot of farts and crap. Oh, yes. I That sounds <laughs> that sounds really fun. Uh, me and me and some buddies are working on a music video that we're doing like uh, like Charlie Chaplin, like Buster Keaton style um and fans of the podcast know like i talked a lot about it on um an episode have you seen the bad batch it's uh yeah yeah. and so people know that i love films with less and less dialogue no dialogue if it's not needed at all so that that definitely excites me so very excited so i'll definitely be on the lookout for that uh the audience you guys should be on the lookout for that so thank you one more time uh todd strauss for coming on the show we appreciate you for having me. Great job with the questions. Thanks for loving the movie and promoting it and amplifying it. It's great. I will scream it from the rooftops any chance that I can. I swear. Man, I gotta tell you guys. This is my favorite episode so far. I know we're only 11 episodes into the podcast, but... Man, like, it was just such a great conversation, and it was so amazing just to hear his enthusiasm that he has for the film. Like, you can just tell that he absolutely loved making this film. He's so proud of it. And that's a director's dream, to get to make the exact film that you want. 
and to be proud of it the way that he is, like, that's a director's dream. Like, I don't know if you could tell, like, it, like, almost got me emotional just talking about that aspect of being just so happy for him, especially with everything, the background with his parents and the writer's parents as well, just everything that went into the film and how much fun people seem to have when they made the film. Um, that it, This is just a director's dream. And uh, that's something that I aspire for as a filmmaker. I can't wait until I have this experience making a film. Um, but yeah, and sorry this episode went long, but I mean, I could have talked to Todd for three hours about this movie, and I'm sure he could have too. Um, he was just such a great guy, and it was just uh, such a such a great conversation, just as, as an aspiring filmmaker, but also just a big fan of his film. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Like I said, we have some more guests coming up, some more filmmakers to talk about their films in future episodes. So, um, that being said, before we close out the show, one, make sure you guys are getting those five-star reviews in on Apple Podcasts. I need that shit. It might help me sleep at night. Oh, just please put them in. Just, 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 just the tip. Just the tip. Just give me five stars and a word. That's all I need. But it's all good. I'm going to be bribing you guys all of next month to be getting these five-star reviews in because I'm doing a giveaway for the entire month of August. I've been teasing it for like three episodes now, but I'm trying to hype it up, you know? So next week, you will get the details on that giveaway. Super excited about it. Speaking of next week, you will be getting two episodes because I just want to. The uh, Tuesday's episode coming up is on American Psycho and Vampire's Kiss. It is a solo episode. American Psycho is one of my favorite films ever. And then I watched Vampire's Kiss for the first time not too long ago. And they're like kind of the same movie. So I'm really excited to get into that. And then there will be a bonus episode on Friday, which I will let you guys uh, know about that next week. So until then, make sure you guys um, go subscribe on the YouTube channel, Bloody Blunts, and also follow me on Letterboxd at Bloody Blunts. On Letterboxd, I have a list of every film that's been covered on the podcast so far, so that way you can just kind of go back and see and um, keep track of everything, and Letterboxd is where I keep track of all the movies that I'm watching. So please follow me on Letterboxd, and I I have a YouTube segment for Letterbox coming up soon. Actually, two uh, segments about Letterbox coming up soon. So um, make sure you follow me on there. But that is all I have for this week's episode of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. Thank you for listening. Make sure you follow me on social media at Bloody Blunts with three O's on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you guys are subscribed to the podcast. Like and retweet my tweets. Share the shit with your friends. You know what? Just take a hit of that spooky shit and pass it. Stay lifted.